Alright, so as I mentioned today, we're going to look at the, the events that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. I love uh, paintings and stuff like this where we think about Jesus praying. And you probably are somewhat familiar with this story, but just to give you a little bit of an overview. Of course, Jesus goes and he, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll talk about what that is and where that is. And uh, this is sort of the final scene, if you will, the final little chapter, the final mini-story before Jesus is arrested and taken to the authorities and eventually crucified. Now this story about Jesus going to the garden appears in all four of the gospel accounts. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, we were talking about Peter's denial and how that also appears in all four. And we go, wow, the fact that it's there really strengthens the validity of those accounts because each one was taken from different witnesses and different witnesses observed the exact same thing. And we're going to go through that today. Now, although they are exactly the same, each one has sort of a slightly different take and a slightly different view. And that's interesting. And we're going to go through that this morning. But we should have confidence as we see, wow, there's four accounts of the same story. We go, wow, we need to pay attention. We should pay attention to anything that's in the scripture, right? Whether it's there once or a hundred times. But we go, wow, it's here four times. Let's really pay attention to it. So I thought it would be cool to dive in and look at all four accounts and sort of lay them all together and say, wow, we kind of get one particular story from it. So for your help, I made a little chart. For those of you engineer types like Daryl who really like charts, hopefully. You're going to see here is across the top each column are the four gospel accounts. We're going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're going to go through sort of the sequence of the story. So what leads into the story of Jesus going to the garden? So in Matthew, they're at the Lord's Supper, and as Zach talked about that last week. In Mark, they're at the Lord's Supper, and then he talks about them going to the Mount of Olives. And Luke, it's also the Lord's Supper. And John, he gives that as well. But in John, there's also this big sermon that's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's great. You should read it. It's there in the chapters of John. Uh, What happens next? So how does the story develop? The first thing that really happens in the story for Matthew is they go out to the garden. And they call it in Matthew, they call it Gethsemane. That's the name that's given to it. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Mark does the same thing. It says they went out to Gethsemane. Then in Luke, it's a little bit different. He calls it the Mount of Olives. And you might look at that and say, well, that's a little bit different. That's not the same. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute as well. And in John, John says, okay, they went out from the upper room and went across the brook named Kidron. So we'll talk about that as well, too. So you can see these things are starting to line up a little bit more. So then what happens? They go into the garden, and Jesus says, I'm going to go pray. And in Matthew, he says, he, leaves, he goes and he leaves nine of the disciples. He leaves nine there, and he goes off to pray. In Mark, it says the same thing. In Luke, it doesn't mention the nine. It just says he leaves the disciples and goes to pray. And in John, that's, that's not pausing. John doesn't say anything. Right? So then we go on to the next thing. In Matthew, there's sort of this another layer that happens. And in Matthew, he recounts that Jesus then, he, he leaves the nine and takes Peter, James, and John. And he goes off a little bit. And then he leaves them and he goes off alone. Same thing happens in Mark. It describes the same thing. In Luke, Luke doesn't describe that again. But what does Luke include that the others don't include? Luke says, well, Jesus prayed, and as Jesus prayed, an angel came to strengthen him. And, this is the point where you probably remember this part of the story, Jesus was under such emotional stress, he began to sweat blood. 
then what does John include? Nothing. It's not just paused. Yeah. John doesn't include anything. And I, isn't that interesting? Because who's right there? John. It's the same John. The John who wrote the gospel is the same one who's there, who's of the three, who gets brought to the place. So you think he would know, but he doesn't include this story for whatever reason. So then after that, Jesus is like, okay, we're going to come back. He comes back to the disciples. And you remember this about three times he comes back and they're asleep and he tells them to wake up. He does that three times. Matthew and Mark record that both times. Then Luke records that Jesus comes back. John also records nothing, right? You're like, this story is missing, so why do you even have it up here? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Finally, the last thing is what happens next, just so that it connects, right? We start at the beginning, they came from the Lord's Supper, and then at the end, where do they go? Well, it ends up in the scene where Judas is betraying Jesus, and we see that across the board in all four, if the computer ever catches up to my fast talking. All right, so we see that Judas betrays Jesus. And that actually does occur in John. So we see that connection. John just sort of leaves out the meat of the story. Why did he do that? I don't know. Maybe it was too personal for him. Maybe he'd just gotten through Jesus' big discourse and he didn't want to add that detail. He just wanted to get right to the rest of the story. So that being said, that gives you kind of, hey, that's how those things, all that matrix goes together. And we're going to put all those together. But if you're like me, you like the visuals. You don't just like the charts like our engineer friends. You like to see the visuals. So I made a little map for you here. And so on this map, maybe even my laser pointer will work, right? So you've got in gray, this is the city of Jerusalem as it was right there in the first century. And you can see in the red box, this would be where they believe the upper room was located. And so... Where is the Mount of Olives? Hey, the Mount of Olives is over here across the city. So, as it describes in the story, they left, as John says, they went out and they crossed the Kidron Brook. Well, this is the Kidron Valley right here, and there is a brook that runs through it. And so they went across to the Mount of Olives, and lo and behold, Gethsemane, this garden, is located right there. So now you have a geography. You understand, okay, this is really a story and it really happens. So, given that, I want to go through and read the passage. Notice we haven't read the passage yet. I'm going to read the passage, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to put all four accounts together into one account. So rather than reading four different accounts, I'm going to read one. And you'll see I've got the references on the side there, as long as the computer is going to keep up with me. So, it starts off... And I'm going to start with it here. Jesus had spoken. He gave the upper room discourse. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
not as I will, but as you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And that's the story. And at that point, Judas shows up with the mob. And they arrest Jesus. And so I've pieced that all together into a single picture. And again, I do this because I think if it's in all four accounts, it's really, really important that we take out of it what God would have us take out of it. And so what is that? What would God have us take out of that? Well, I think there's a few things, and I'll give you my view on what I see from that today. So the place I want to start is with the name of the place, Gethsemane. Right, so here's a picture, and you can see this would be, if you go back to that map, this is about where they think Gethsemane was, and there is, in fact, a garden in this place. And you can see across the way, that's the Temple Mount, where the gold dome is, is about where the temple would have stood there when Jesus was present. And so the name Gethsemane means place of the olive press. So there were olive trees in this garden. In fact, many believe at this site, not these specific trees, there's another place nearby here that they have olive trees that they've aged at 900 years old. So they were probably the olive trees that were standing there when Jesus came into the garden to pray. So what happens at an olive press? I assume, well, this was probably the site of an olive press. What happens in an olive press? We're probably not familiar with that, right? Today we want olives and we go to Costco and we buy a jar. We take olives out. Or if we want olive oil, we buy a jug or a bottle or whatever your family consumes, right? That's what we do. We go, well, I don't know how they get that. Well, it makes some sense, right? We go, okay, they needed olives. They called this place, what, the Mount of what? Olives. And so there was olives here, and olives were very important in that culture because olives not only were food, but their oil brought about a lot of good stuff. Now, we think of it in terms of cooking, right? Probably a lot of us are like, oh yeah, I like my, like my EVOO or whatever. We like to put that in our food and make it, and they used it for cooking as well, but in addition, they used it for lamps. They used it as an oil that would light lamps. Well, that also had religious purposes as well. And, and you read back in the Old Testament, olive oil was used to anoint people who were important to God, priests and kings and so forth. So there was a, a, an importance to this, the way that olive oil sort of worked its way into the culture and its use. 
So how was olive oil made is very interesting. You've got to get the oil out of the olives, and to do that you have to do what? You've got to crush it. And so the way it worked was they had a stone trough, and they'd put these ripe olives in the stone trough, and then they would have a wheel, a heavy stone wheel, and they would put that stone wheel on it, and they would sort of roll it back and forth. As they roll it back and forth, it would crush those ripe olives, and the oil would drain out into jars. So it took intense pressure, and crushing, and that's really important here. We're going to get to that because that imagery makes a lot of sense as it pertains to Jesus. There was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 5, about the Messiah. And it said, The Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This very clear prophecy about the Messiah. He would be what? Crushed. He would be crushed. I think Luke goes even further. Luke goes so far as to say, hey, this crushing of Christ, the weight upon him caused blood to seep out of his pores, which is actually something that can happen to us medically when we're under intense emotional stress. Jesus was under the extreme pressure. He was taking, he was in the process of taking the heavy weight of our sins upon him. He was being crushed just like olives. Just like olives. But, just as the crushing of those olives makes good oil, the crushing of Christ brings good to us, doesn't it? It, it comes upon us. We, we go, wow, Christ has done this thing. It's created this, this olive oil, if you will, that can be used in our lives as a lamp, Right? The Holy Spirit can become the lamp in us, the light. It can light. It's the fuel that lights and shows God's truth and God's goodness to others. It can also anoint us. We see in the New Testament, it describes those who are Christians as the priesthood of believers. And you become part of the priesthood of believers when you receive the free gift of salvation. And the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And so we are anointed in that same way. And so you can see this picture that God is creating here. And so one reason to take this story seriously and the one reason it's so important is because it connects Jesus back to the prophecy and it shows it's a picture. God's put a picture there of what is happening with Christ and comparing it with the olives and the place in the garden. And that's important, but I think there's also a real practical implication we can take out of the story as well. And I want to focus on that for the rest of the time this morning is this practical application, which is this. I think that God has something for us. He gives us an example with Christ, and it's this, that he wants us to walk through what I call I don't want to moments with faith in him. He wants us to walk through these really hard moments. What do I mean by I don't want to moments? I just simply mean those times when we're faced with really, really difficult circumstances. Such that you just want to say, I don't, wa I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't want to walk through that. I don't want to experience that. That's what Christ was facing there. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about inconvenient stuff. Right? I, my driver's license, I noticed, expires this year. And so in a couple months, I have to go in and stand in line the DMV. And I can say, I don't want to. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. Right? Well, I don't want to sit in traffic. I don't, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those really, really hard things that are happening in life. Things that make you want to curl up in a ball. Things that make you want to run away and hide and quit and leave. Whatever it is that you're going through. 
And when I say that, I bet almost every single one of us can say, yeah, I've got something like that going on in my life. I've had something like that going on in my life. Or I know somebody who has that going on in their life. And that's what I think Christ is, uh, God is talking to us here and showing us in Jesus. Because Jesus himself had an I don't want to moment right there in Gethsemane. He says, God, he says, Abba, which in our vernacular would just be daddy. He's like, dad, dad, I know this is possible for you, but I don't want to do it. He says, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Let me not have to walk through these circumstances. I think we can relate. I know I can relate. Jesus knew exactly what was coming, too. He was God. He knew what was coming. He knew what he had to walk through. And yet he wasn't the Father. And so we see right here in Gethsemane just this picture of the Trinity. Where Jesus is God and yet he's in relationship with God as the, as the Son. He's in relationship with the Father. And he calls the Father Abba. He calls him Daddy. We see that closeness of relationship right there modeled for us. And we see Jesus. He's face to face with the worst circumstances you could possibly imagine. He's about to be betrayed by one of his best friends. That'd be enough to crush any one of us. But there's more than that. He's about to be falsely accused in front of the religious leaders. And he's about to be executed and tortured before that by the Romans. And it's not just a quick execution by lethal injection. It's slow and painful and gruesome. Many historians have described it as the worst form of death ever conceived. And he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. He sees that cup sitting before him. But there's a spiritual dimension to it as well. Because he's about to carry the weight of the sins of every single one of us and every single person who would ever place their faith in him. He's going to carry those. Those are sins that he did not commit. He didn't commit any sins. He was about to face the greatest injustice of all time. And so for us, each one of us, in the midst of whatever we're going through, if you're going through right now, you sit and look into your heart and you go, yeah, I'm facing an I don't want to moment. I want you to remember, Jesus also faced an I don't want to moment. And I think it's just so great. He shows us right there. He shows us that it's okay. And not just okay, that it's expected that we would turn to God and say, God, I don't want to. Jesus does that. He says, I don't want to. We too can turn to God and say, I don't want to. And what's so great is that the Father hears Jesus. And their relationship isn't broken because Jesus says, I don't want to do that. Their relationship is strong. And our relationship, when we turn to God and say, I don't want to, he hears us. And our relationship with him remains unchanged. And so Jesus models that for us. And yet, when we face these moments and we go, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't want to walk through that. What is our human response? Well, we make some mistakes, I think, and I want to highlight those this morning. I want to highlight those because in this very story, we see the disciples, and the disciples make the same mistakes that we do. The disciples, they knew what was happening. Now, they didn't know to the level that Jesus knew. They didn't know exactly how the details were going to turn turn out, but they knew. Jesus had just told them in the upper room, Hey, one of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to go and get killed. 
That's essentially what he told them. They knew it was coming. And we see in the passage, they have sorrow because they know this is coming. So they too are facing an I don't want to moment. I don't want to walk through this with you, Jesus. They were not oblivious to what was happening. So here's those mistakes that they make. The first mistake that we make and that they made when we face an I don't want to moment is we don't pray. Go, well, that sounds very simple. We don't pray. And yet, we've got to realize, we have access by prayer to an all-powerful God. The all-powerful God. It says in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with what? Prayer. Let your request be known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Look at those disciples. Man, they could have used that peace. They could have used a guarding of their hearts. But they didn't pray. And in the same way, we don't pray. Instead of going to God, who is the source of all peace, the source of all wisdom, the one who saves us, we choose other stuff, don't we? I know I can do that. I can choose other stuff. We can go, oh, I don't want to, so... I'm going to go be entertained by something. Or I'm going to go and engage in taking some substances and putting them in my body. Or I'm going to go, well, I'm just going to go talk to other people. Or I'm going to go see if I can find answers to this on the internet. That's our tendency. We don't pray. We don't pray. We don't talk to God. Our first response, our first response should be, I don't want to. God, help. So that's my encouragement to you today. Don't do what these guys did. The disciples modeled a poor response. They failed to pray in the face of their suffering. The second thing they did, the second thing that we do, was we fall asleep. Now, I think it could mean literally, right? Like I said, oh, you face these circumstances and you go, I just want to curl up in a ball. And have you ever had that happen? I don't know. You nod your head if you have. I know I have. I have those things that happen to me and I go, I don't want to deal with this. I want to go get under the covers and pull them over my head and curl up in a ball and go to sleep. Because suffering is exhausting. It seems better if I could just go be in my dreams, asleep in my dreams, and I wouldn't have to deal with this. And now when we get to the disciples, the disciples literally did fall asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. Three times they fell asleep. Jesus had to come and come come back to them and say, Be awake, be alert, wake up. Could you not pray? But I think in addition to it being literally, I think we can also fall asleep in sort of a figurative way. We can come into the face of those I don't want to situations and we can start to check out. We can check out mentally. We can start to try to disengage from the problems. And when we do that, we start to disengage from our relationships and disengage from our responsibilities. And while that seems kind of nice, the main problem with this is what? Our sufferings, our challenges, our I don't want to moments, they don't go away. They don't go away because we're falling asleep. When we do that, we're like the little kid. I don't know if you, any of you have experienced this. I know I've had little kids in my house for a long time, and maybe you have, or maybe you've just heard about this or seen this, but with a like, little, little kid, and you start playing like hide-and-seek with them, and you go, okay, now go hide, and they do this. And it's like, I can't see you, so you can't see me. And they cover their eyes, and you go, no, that doesn't work. But that's what we do when we fall asleep. We go, oh, I just want to check out from this. And that's like what the disciples were doing. They're like, we, we don't know what to do. We don't want to engage in this. And so they went to sleep. And so they modeled a poor response to the challenges of the I don't want to moments. They failed to stay awake. 
And the third thing they did, and the third thing that we tend to do, is we run away. Now you have to kind of go beyond the passage to see you go out after Judas has betrayed him. And it says in Matthew 26, 56, as one example, it says, Then all the disciples left Jesus and fled. They ran away. And in some ways, this is the culmination there. Running away is sort of the culmination of problems one and two. They didn't pray. They didn't seek God's help. They didn't ask for strength in prayer. They retreated from the situation by falling asleep. Then they woke up. The problems didn't go away. They were disoriented. The mob shows up. And what do they do? They flee. In fact, in Mark we read, and we believe it was Mark himself, he says... He was there and he was wearing his clothes and he was so afraid they like grabbed him and he like slipped out of his clothes and ran away naked. (laughs) Like, well, that didn't solve anything. And yet we can think that running away can seem attractive because we go, well, if I can just get out of that situation, if I can just get away from where that is, things will be better. But the reality is that difficult challenges typically have no tie-in to geography. They have no tie-in to geography. So running away at best delays the problems. And we see that with the disciples. As we go on in the story, their problems, their challenges, their fears, it comes back to them. It catches up to them. They end up, Christ is crucified. They end up in fear. They're hiding. They're dismayed. They're worried. And they're not headed for a good end. And it takes God showing up with miraculous power with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to change that scenario. But they give us a bad model because they failed to stay and face the problems that they had. They failed to walk into the I don't want to moments. Now, in contrast, Jesus in the same story shows us a good model of how we can approach I don't want to. How we can be in faith. He gives us a good model. And they're all going to contrast those first three, right? So the first one is he prayed to God. Jesus was faced with this intense suffering, this intense anguish. And the first thing he does is what? He calls out to God and he goes, Daddy, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, his prayer, it wasn't flowery. It wasn't complicated. And it wasn't public, was it? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was alone when he prayed this. How do we know that he prayed this? The only way we know is he came back to life. And he told the disciples later, and they got it to the guys who recorded the Gospels. Isn't that cool? We'll talk about that some more next week. But see, here's the point. Jesus was under duress, intense duress, because of this thing. And he was saying, I don't want to. And yet, even though he didn't want to, what did he do? He chose to turn and communicate with the Almighty God. And he did it, why? Because he wanted to take his heart of, I don't want to, and I want to get it in line with God and God's will for my life. And that's our application, is that prayer is a way for us to align our hearts with God's will. When you face an I don't want to moment, and maybe you're facing one now, your first response should be what? Prayer. It should be prayer. And what will happen? What will happen? Well, I think God is going to come and and help. I think he shows us that in this passage. In this story, God's going to come help. For Jesus, it was in the form of an angel who came and strengthened him. Now, I don't know if an angel will come and help you. But I believe God will help you. And God will help me. And God will help us when we face these moments. 
The second thing Jesus does that models the right response to an I don't want to moment is that he accepts the cup given. And we too should accept the cup given to us. Well, what is a cup? Well, it just simply was a picture of something that's set before you. It's like a cup that's set before you. These circumstances, this issue, this thing that Jesus had to walk through was set before him. And you also, and I also, have things set before us. And I love, that's why that verse in John is so important. Jesus has come to a place where he has accepted what he has to do. And he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Yes, is the answer to that question. Yes. So what are you facing? What are you facing? What is the thing that you have that is an I don't want to moment? Where you're saying, God, would you just take it away? And can you be like Christ and come to a place and say, Okay, God, I accept that you have this for me to walk through. I know for me as a pastor, it's one of those things that's been a little bit surprising as I've moved into this world of how many things I come face to face with where I go, Oh, that issue or that thing or that challenge. And I go, Oh, God, I don't want to. (laughs) What did I sign up for here? I don't want to. And I'm learning on this point but to trust that God has appointed for me to walk through that, to, to drink from that cup. And that's my encouragement to each one of you. Accept the cup that God has given you and the circumstances that you are to walk through. And trust that God has appointed you for that. If he is all-powerful and he is almighty and he is eternal, then from the beginning of time, he is appointed for you to walk through those circumstances. I hope that's encouraging to you. The third thing Jesus does is exactly that. As he walks forward. He walks forward in faith. Remember, Jesus walks forward into the worst possible circumstances. He walks forward and he accepts that he's going to be betrayed by his friend. He accepts that he's going to be falsely accused. He accepts that he's going to have to face this Jewish council and then he's going to be tortured and executed. Then he's going to take on the penalty for all the sins of the world, sins he didn't commit. But what glory awaited him for doing that? And what good came to us as he walked that path? Are you thankful that he did that? I am. And I think in our own circumstances, there will be people in our own selves where as we walk through these moments, we'll be thankful and others will be thankful. And just as avoiding prayer and avoiding acceptance leads to running away, I think aligning with God and accepting what he has for us leads us to a path forward and the strength and the faith to walk forward. And so as you think about those things in your life, you think about those I don't want to's or and people around you or maybe, maybe one's going to show up this afternoon, I don't know. As you think about that, let me ask you a couple questions. First, do you want to have victory over that situation? Do you want to have victory? Do you want to get through it? Do you want to grow in character? Do you want to grow in character? Do you want to be closer to God at the end and as you go through it, or do you want to be further away from Him? You cannot accomplish those things. Those things can't be accomplished in your life unless you go through it. Unless you walk forward into it the way Jesus walked forward into His very difficult, I don't want to moment. 
And so in closing, why don't we put Jesus' model into practice? Let's take a few minutes here and we're going to pray together so everyone can bow your heads and close your eyes and be in the quietness of your heart. You can think about, man, what, what is that thing? And maybe it's very clear to you and you understand immediately, ha, I don't want to do this thing, God. I don't want to experience this thing. I don't want to walk through this thing. Maybe you know somebody who has or you go, well, I don't have anything right now, but man, I'm, I'm sure it's coming. In the midst of that, I would encourage you to pray. And as we pray, we can just say, Lord, Lord, I turn to you. Daddy, I don't want to. I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to walk through this thing. I don't want to deal with these circumstances. God, I know that in my heart, I want to just turn and I want to run away. I want to fall asleep. I want to turn to other sources. But God, in this moment... I turn to you. God, I want to get my heart aligned with your will. God, if you've set this cup before me to drink, then in faith I am going to drink it. And God, I'm going to walk forward in faith. God, I accept your will. And God, as I walk forward, Lord, I ask that you would give me strength, Lord, in the same way that you showed up to Jesus and strengthened him in the midst of the circumstances that were crushing him. God, I know that you can show up and help me and give me strength and me faith to walk forward in the circumstances that are crushing me. Lord, would you help us in that? Help us to be a people who accept the cup that have been given to us and walk forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.